These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, from Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart." I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Word of the Lord, would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we need you. We trust you. We depend on you to open our hearts, open our eyes to your word, to what it is you are saying to us through your word. I pray that you would be with me this morning as I speak. May these words be your words and not mine. Holy Spirit, come and dwell among us that we might gain wisdom, that we might know Christ, our Savior, better today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, so Jeremiah is sending this letter um, to the exiles in Babylon. Now, at this time in history, this is about 590-ish BC. And so that means that there's already been two waves of exiles who have gone from, ba- from Jerusalem to Babylon. Uh, the first wave was in 604, uh, and that would have included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those folks. Um, so by this time, Daniel has already gone through um, the first couple chapters of his book, if you're following along with history here. Um, so, but exile has happened because of unrepentant sin, because of idolatry, because of a long line of failure to worship the Lord by the kings of Judah. Um, if you were to go back and flip through Leviticus and look at Leviticus 26, you would find that there is a uh, kind of a, a listing of phases of punishment for breaking covenant in that chapter. 
And, and God goes through and lists off all these different things he says he's going to do if his people break covenant. Exile is the fifth stage of covenant curses. And so you know that if Judah has gotten to this point where they are exiled, that their sin has persisted. It is unrepentant. It is ongoing. It, is, it has been going on for literally hundreds of years. So that's where we are. Um, if you want to point to some other more specific examples of why they're in exile, the scriptures say, uh, 2 Kings 24, 24 3, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. Manasseh was, if, if you had a, a list of all the different sins one could possibly ever do, he did them all. Uh, he, in 2 Kings 21.9, it says that Manasseh led them, being Judah, astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So that's all of the Canaanite nations. That's quite a lot of evil. Jeremiah 9, 5-6 also talks about the, the condition of the people at the time of exile. It says, everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. So the list of reasons why Judah has gone into exile includes idolatry, it includes unrepentant sin, it is includes ignoring the poor, ignoring the vulnerable. It includes complacency, getting too comfortable. It includes a list of things that should grieve all of us. And so Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes in different waves through the years and, and besieges Jerusalem and, and takes Jews back to Babylon into exile. And this is key, he's acting on God's authority. He's God's servant. This is the will of God. This is God's sovereignty. If you look at this passage, Jeremiah 29, God's sovereignty is everywhere. Everything that's happening is happening because God is directing it to happen. He is sending them into exile. This is not a mistake. This is not an accident. God is sovereign over all of this, and he's sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar, who, as we read in Jeremiah 27, 6, uh, God says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. My servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. So Nebuchadnezzar is God's agent here. So the worst has happened. The Jews have been ripped from their homeland, at least some of them. Uh, they've been ripped from the promised land that was given to them by God. And I wonder if we can relate to this at all. I think in terms of our sin in terms of our brokenness before God, in terms of our broken relationships with God, we can definitely relate. We're all in exile. Um, every human being, since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, has been in an exile from God because of our sin. And this is a far worse exile than any earthly exile we could ever experience. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien so you think that because Robert's not here, you're going to get away with, you know, uh, no Hobbit or Lord, but you are mistaken. J.R. Tolkien, he says, we all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it, but 
our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with the sense of exile. We are exiles through and through in the sense that we are not home. This is not our home. Every human being's home is meant to be in perfect relationship with God. And I think you and I can agree that none of us is there. Even if we have Christ, we're still not quite there yet. Now, in the sense that can we relate to an earthly exile, I don't know that many of us can. At least many of us Americans. I I think maybe if you wanted to to find a, a current type of person who could relate to this, you might look to some of the refugees coming out of the Middle East, seeking shelter, seeking home. They are certainly strangers in a foreign land. Maybe if you go back into our history, you look at the African Americans who were rudely and cruelly ripped away from their homeland to come here. Certainly they would know what this feels like. But we don't know, for the most part, what this feels like. Closest I can come is just saying, I'm a Cubs fan, you know? That's longer than 70 years of it, but that's, I don't mean to make light of it, but we don't know what it feels like to be outcasts. We really don't, at least not yet. You see signs in our current landscape that, that maybe this is coming a little bit. Not that we would necessarily be ripped away from our homeland here, but that our homeland here might begin to feel a lot stranger to us, or that we might begin to look a lot stranger to most of the people around us. Um, Once America was a Judeo-Christian nation and that it upheld many Christian values, uh, you might not say that America was ever truly an entire nation following Jesus, but you could certainly say that America is a nation that valued biblical things. It was relatively easy to follow Jesus and to be an American. The gospel was not really seen as a threat. But we are now increasingly freakish for believing the gospel. Christ, if we say that Christ is the only way to salvation from sin, then we are being exclusive. Maybe we're even being hateful. If we were to tell someone that they are sinners in need of grace, in need of the gospel, in need of Jesus Christ for salvation alone, we might be told that we are infringing upon their individual rights, that we are denying them the chance to determine their own personal truth. The gospel is offensive to all sinners, to all human beings. And if not for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, it would be offensive to us as well. It is only by His grace that we love the gospel. But there may be a day, I don't know when, but there may be a day when the gospel is more than just offensive. It may be a disturbance of the peace. It may be a threat to the American way. It may be an extreme teaching that produces radicals. It may be illegal. How should we live in that day? What can Jeremiah's letter to the exiles teach us some 2,500 years or more later? Well, the first thing it tells us, I think, is to be prayerful in seeking shalom where we live. 
You know, in exile, I can imagine that some may have wanted to hide. They're in this strange land. They're, they don't know the language. Houses look different. The food is different. They may have wanted to just shell up, hide, escape the Babylonians. You see this some in our day. There are some who their faith, for whatever reason, leads them to want to escape from the world, to form a holy huddle, to, uh, as the cliche goes, to be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. You've heard that maybe. Um, but Jeremiah is saying, no, don't circle the wagons. Don't hide from the culture. Don't pretend like there's no one else out there, just you and your little holy huddle. Plant yourselves in the community. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat from their produce. Put down roots and enjoy God's gifts. Get married, have children, have grandchildren. Don't decrease your population, increase your population. And the most important thing he says, though, is to seek the welfare. And that word welfare there in the Hebrew is shalom. To seek the welfare of the city and pray to God on its behalf. Now, shalom is not just peace. Peace, if you think of it, is really just an absence of strife, an absence of war. But shalom is is way more than that. It is a fullness of joy in right relationship with God, with others, with yourself, and with your environment. With every, every relationship that you could have, a fullness of joy in those relationships. It's getting back to the way God has created us to be. We can all agree that Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Shalom is getting us back to that. And we also have to recognize, though, that we are powerless to do that. We are powerless, ultimately, to achieve shalom. We can seek it to pursue it, but ultimately, we must, rather than achieve it ourselves, we must know the one who can bring it about, the one who is all-powerful, It is only by the adoptive love of the Father, by the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and by the effectual call of the Holy Spirit in our lives that any of us can truly experience shalom, fullness of joy with God. Another way to look at this is if you were to look at John 15.5, which talks about abiding in Christ. We only get shalom when we abide in Christ. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, we cannot find shalom. So whether we are living in relative comfort, as many of us do now, or whether we are exiles living in a time of trial and suffering, We are to abide in Christ. And out of that abiding relationship, bear fruit. Seek shalom for the community around us. So what does that mean? Well, I want to suggest to you that this is a kind of reissuing of the cultural mandate that we find in Genesis 1, where God says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then also, a kind of reissuing of what God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, where he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, 
and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. The people of God are blessed to be a blessing. We're not blessed for that blessing to end on ourselves. We are blessed to extend that same blessing to others. We're not set apart, made holy unto the Lord to hide from the culture. We are in a covenant relationship with God so that through us, God might bless the ends of the earth. Now practically, to seek shalom in this way, I would say it looks like to seek justice, to seek mercy, especially for the vulnerable, for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow. It's to bless others through our material blessings, to be good stewards of all that God has given us, to be good stewards of the environment around us. It's to raise our children in such a way that they fear the Lord and love the Lord so that they too in their day might be a blessing to society. Simply put, it is to seek to make right all that we see that is wrong. I have a friend who recently went on an impromptu mission trip to uh, the border of Macedonia and Greece. And there were refugee camps there for all the Middle Eastern refugees escaping ISIS and trying to migrate west. Um, And he went mostly to encourage those who are ministering among the refugees. Um, He told these crazy stories about sleeping in a tent next to a Kurdish special forces fighter who had fought against ISIS, and he was afraid he was going to have a flashback and wake up and stab him or something, and nice guy, but anyway. um, the, The thing I got from this conversation was that there was so much brokenness. The causes of all of this, the effect of all of this, so much brokenness, overwhelming brokenness. And he said that the people who were seeking to minister to the refugees had no idea where to start. Where do you begin? And they just felt discouraged. But it was a good reminder to them to hear encouragement, to be reminded that they're not called to fix this. They're simply called to plant themselves amidst the people and seek shalom. And that's why we must pray. Above all else, seeking shalom is to pray. Not only for our well-being, but for the Holy Spirit to change hearts. That they might know and follow Jesus, that they might be in shalom with Him. We cannot do that. Only Christ can do that. Only God can change a heart. Only God can make all the sad things come untrue again. And so we must pray. You've probably heard before, there's never been a great revival that did not begin with prayer. So are we praying for our community? Are we praying for the neighborhoods around us? Are you praying for the neighborhood where you live? For the school where you attend? You know, it strikes me that we have a very unique opportunity coming up in the next year when we will be literally planted amidst hundreds of homes. Are we praying for them? The text tells us to prayerfully seek the shalom of our community and that this will bring us shalom as well. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Maybe like with the refugee camps, we'll feel as though our efforts are overwhelming. We don't know where to start. 
Maybe nothing will change if we pray. But something will change. We will change. We will change because we will have been with our Savior. And so if nothing else, we will find shalom simply by being with Him. There's more. Another way to seek the shalom of the community is to be diligent in seeking the truth of God's Word. This is in verses 8 and 9 where, where he's talking about the, the false prophets and the diviners, the dreams that they dream, that they're, they're not prophesying in God's name. Well, what's going on there? Back in chapter 28, there's a fella named Hananiah. And he came to Jerusalem prophesying in God's name. Problem was, his prophecies and Jeremiah's prophecies were like the exact opposite. So one of them is, is really prophesying in God's name and one of them's not. So which one is it? Well, God, through Jeremiah, he's saying 70 years of exile. That's what you can expect. Hananiah is saying, no, no. Don't worry about that guy. He's, he's telling you hard things. I promise you. Only two years of exile. And then you're coming back. We'll defeat Babylon. Everything will be great. See, Hananiah, though, has an ulterior motive. He's kind of a yes man. There's a, uh, a puppet king on the throne named Zedekiah. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar put him in power in Jerusalem. But Zedekiah decided, I don't really like Nebuchadnezzar. I think I'm going to rebel. But if I do that, I need help. So he's seeking the assistance of some of the neighboring kings of places like Tyre and Sidon. And what better way to lend credence to your plan than to have a prophet come and say, oh yeah, God says this is going to work. And so that's what Hananiah is doing. He is putting a religious stamp onto this political plan. Uh, This is a really old trick. The ancient world, you know, every emperor basically said he was a god so as to lend this kind of religious, religious credence to his power, his authority. You saw this in the Crusades. God wants us to go and save the Holy Land, so it's okay for us to kill. You saw this with the Reformation, with the Roman Catholic Church saying, pay us indulgences, you'll get your family out of purgatory. In the meantime, we'll pay for St. Peter's Cathedral. Today, we have many false teachers. Some will preach, you can gain material wealth if you just have enough faith. Others will preach that we should conform to the culture. Things have changed. We have to adapt. If we want to save our credibility, we have to go with what the culture is teaching, not what the Bible's teaching. The Bible's old. Well, those all have one thing in common, and that's that they are false teachings that ignore the Word of God. They, as uh, 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. These teachings, these false prophecies and doctrines, they scratch itchy ears. They tell people what they want to hear. You can have a good life now. You can have comfort immediately. You don't have to depend on God. Just have enough faith and you can have it. But this has no regard for God's sovereign will. These teachings have no eye for heavenly things. But we must not be surprised at this. 
Remember, we are in exile. We are not at home. This place is not our home. We are not in shalom with the Lord. Not yet. And so we must go on the offensive against these lies, against these false teachings. So we must be diligent in preaching and teaching and studying and knowing God's Word. For in it alone do we find absolute truth. The Scriptures, among so many other things that the Scriptures are, the Scriptures are a historical record of God always being true. Always being true to His Word. Always keeping His promises. Jeremiah knew this. As he had his battle with Hananiah for prophet supremacy, he basically just says, just wait and see what happens. If, if you think your prophecy is true, I say mine is, is truly from God, let's just wait and see. If, if in two years people come back, then obviously you're telling the truth. Well, within two years, Hananiah was dead. So I guess he lost. This showed that God's word is true and that Jeremiah was the true prophet of God. And you know, coming back to us, Zal's only had a shadow of the counsel of God. We have the whole counsel of God. We have the whole word of God. We know that the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy, the ultimate keeping of promises, the ultimate truth is fulfilled in Christ's life and death and resurrection from the dead. We know that He has defeated Satan. We know that He has put sin to death. We know that He is growing His church. Nothing can stop that. And if we know this, if we know our Scriptures, we know that Satan can pester us. We know that he can distract us. But we also know that he can never snatch us away from Christ. John 10, 27-30 says, My sheep... Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Word of God is nourishment for our souls. It is even more precious than the food that nourishes our bodies. I know that we are busy. I know that the Bible can be difficult to understand. I know there's a lot that we need to keep up with on Netflix. But we must not neglect the Word of God for anything. If we do that, we risk starving our souls. We risk slowly being led astray by subtle false teachings. We should seek the Lord in the Scriptures. We should test everything we hear by the Scriptures, like the Bereans of Acts 17. In this way, we will stand firm in the faith amidst false teaching. And we will see the hope that we have, we have in Christ as we abide in exile in Him. That leads me to my final point, which is that in exile, we must be hopeful in seeking the Lord. This goes along with verses 10-14 through 14 in your text. The Lord gives the exiles His timeline for their return. He's saying, 70 years, and then you will return. You'll come back to Jerusalem. So, you, you know that this is God's sovereign will. You know that He has put you there in exile. You know how long you're going to be there. So, you can have assurance 
as you invest yourself in the community, as you invest yourself in doing God's work, as you pursue shalom and pray for shalom in the community. This is God's will. You can take great comfort in knowing that. You can rest knowing that God's plans are not for your evil. Now notice, there is nothing in this text that says that their lives in exile will be comfortable or easy. Judah was being disciplined for unrepentant sin, um, for, for idolatry. Deuteronomy 8.5 says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, though, the Lord your God disciplines you. So even though they're being disciplined on the one hand, they may, be, may expect hard times in exile, on the other hand, they must remember this is a show of God's love for them. And so in verse 11, when he talks about the plans he has for them, plans to prosper them, we have to understand this is not necessarily saying they'll prosper in exile. It's talking about the future. After years of prayer, years of seeking God, God's plan is to bring them back home where they will prosper. So for us, even amidst trials, heartache, tragedy, suffering, we must always hope in the Lord. We must always keep our eyes on his greater purpose, which may be unseen. Uh, I love when John Piper says that God may be doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. You may not understand what God's doing in your life, but it doesn't mean it isn't for your good. It may be tragic. You may be going through something akin to what the, the Jews felt in exile, but God in his infinite wisdom and mercy is doing it for your good if you are in Christ. It's the same with the Jews. You know, it strikes me that he was actually saving them from themselves by allowing them to be captives in Babylon. Um, I want to point you to Zephaniah real quick, who is a pre-exilic prophet. talks about the great sin of complacency amidst Judah. It says, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who stay in their, say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. See, many in Judah in those days were not ascribing sovereignty to God. They were saying, God doesn't really act in our lives at all. Maybe he's up there, but he's not doing anything. Um, they believed, really, that there was no need for God. Sort of like what many in our, in our history in the 20th century came to believe, that you know, they would say, God is dead. This is what they believed, a lot of them. But the great irony here is that though they would build houses in their homeland, they would never be home. And though they would plant vineyards in their homeland, they would never enjoy the fruit of the vine. Why? Because they did not seek the Lord. They ignored Him. They grew complacent. And they grew self-reliant. Again, I want to be careful to say that God does not promise the exiles great success in exile. He just says to seek shalom. But He does promise them Himself. Exiles, I think, were probably better able to seek God once they were out of their comfort zone, away from the things that caused them to grow comfortable 
and complacent. So I think what God is saying here is if you will seek me, follow me, turn your hearts towards me, be faithful to me, you will enjoy shalom in a relationship with me even while in exile. And it is far better to abide in a relationship with Christ and live in exile even, to, even though we may suffer than to live in comfort and security but be far from God. You know, already we continue to see and may see even more that many who identify as Christians are turning away from the faith. They, if, if their comfort and security is threatened, they will say, no more, I don't, I don't need this Jesus stuff. And what I think that means, is, what I think that's a result of is simply just not abiding in Christ in the first place. If you don't abide in Christ, the threat of losing whatever you value most will freeze your soul. You will forsake all else to keep whatever you value most. And in that case, this world proves to be the only home they know. I, I saw this commercial a couple of times. It's a Lexus commercial where everybody keeps saying, I could get used to this. You know what I'm talking about, maybe? You, they show people going into like a VIP treatment at a club or eating fine dining where they eat like the, all the little food, you know, with the crazy sauces. Uh, the guys getting a tailored suit. Girls swimming in an infinity pool. They're all like, I could get used to this. For so many, the good life, home, hope, is getting to a place here and now where you can say, I could get used to this. But this is not home. And this is not enough. That's, that's the thing. This is not enough. We could never get used to this once we know Christ because it's not shalom. As Philippians 3, 17-21 says, I promise I'm almost done here. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. I don't know if you've ever said or heard somebody say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, or they're showing their Greek knowledge and saying, Maranatha. It's a joke. I wish Jesus would return, maybe. Often you hear somebody say something like that after a tragedy. The true hope of every believer is for Christ to return. And it's not just because we, we experience a tragedy and we're saddened by brokenness and we want things to be better. Yes, those are true, but it's because more than anything we want to be face-to-face with Jesus. Because we want Him to finish making all sad things come untrue so that we can dwell with Him. That is our hope. That is our home. He has promised us an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all of eternity. Whatever He has won, He shares with us. He has secured our citizenship in heaven, made a way 
to infinite shalom in relationship with God, that is our hope. That is our home. And so in closing, I would say, for one, if we experience suffering, shame, if we feel estranged, if we feel like we are in exile, know that that is probably right where we should expect to be if we follow Jesus. Two, if we abide in Christ, we have every ability to point others to shalom, even if we are in trial, even if we are suffering. Those things are endurable because Christ is our anchor, holding us fast until his return. And three, through it all, we should be eager for Christ's return. We should greatly desire for him to be here, for us to experience the shalom of seeing him face to face, for him to make all things new. You know, you may read Revelation and think end times and that's crazy, that's scary, I don't want any part of that. Let me tell you something. That book is a word of hope and encouragement to every Christian. Because all it's really saying is Christ has won the victory, and if he's your Lord, you can be sure that you are a victor as well. You will be with him for eternity, no matter what happens now. That's what that book is saying. We should desire that. We should desire for Christ to come home. For us, rather, to be at home with Christ. We can live our lives in assurance in this temporary time, in this exilic, strange world. We can seek shalom for those around us, even if it may cost us greatly. Because hope does not depend on this place being our home. Our hope depends on Christ and the home that he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We cannot wait to be dwelling with you face to face. We long for that day. And I pray, though, in between, in the midst, until then, that you would keep us, protect us, help us to trust in you and to seek you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.